day, everyone. Uh, welcome once again to another episode of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and every week we go on a journey back in time 50 years and we report on the hockey and sports news from that time period. Uh, we're back this week with news from the February 16th to 22nd week of 1970. Now, this time we like to mention our sponsors. Newspapers.com is the largest online archive of newspapers on the planet. And without them, we wouldn't be able to find all the neat news items that we give to you each week. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company in Port Coburn, Ontario, located right on Lake Erie with the Welland Canal running right through the middle of town. The Breakwall Brewing Company makes some of the finest craft beers in southern Ontario, and they have some really outstanding pub food from the team in their kitchen, including weekly gourmet burger and pizza specials that are not to be believed. If you're ever in Port Coburn, get a hold of me. I'm not far away, and we'll have a beer at the Breakwall. And last week's show, uh, some of the items we discussed were about Scotty Bowman shaking up his first place St. Louis Blues. Uh, we talked about uh, a bunch of different hockey people that got hit with criminal charges and suspensions as the uglier side of hockey started to come out in the dog days of the hockey season. And we talked about an absolutely crazy baseball trade that never quite happened where we actually would have had the entire rosters of two teams swapped for each other. Now this week's show, we're going to look at Wayne Mackey's testimony at his trial in Ottawa. Now you remember Wayne and Ted Green of the Boston Bruins were going on trial for that ugly stick-swinging duel that took place last September in Ottawa. Uh, we're going to find out the name of Buffalo's new National Hockey League team to start in the fall of 1970 and a couple of big NHL trades this week as the season got down closer to the trading deadline and some big and very surprising names got moved and we got so much more in what was a very very busy news week 50 years ago in the hockey world. We'll have some news and notes other player movement so Let's get to it all. Now, what we started out with this week uh, was, of course, the scoring stats after the weekend play. And when you looked at the scoring statistics 50 years ago, it was really hard to believe. Even today, it was harder to believe back then. We grew up, of course, in the 50s and 60s when that was my childhood and teenage years. And defensemen were never big scorers. They were big guys who took care of business in in uh, team your own team's end, but they didn't foray too far up the ice and make rushes. Well, that all that changed in 1966-67 when a young fella named Bobby Orr came on the scene. Well, here we are now just a few years later, and Bobby Orr, in 54 games into the NHL season, was leading the NHL scoring race with a record of 21 goals, 64 assists for 85 points. Now, as I said, I come from a time when 85 points in a 70-game season would get you an Art Ross trophy. We're only 54 games in, and Bobby's already got 85, 85 points. Teammate Phil Esposito of the Boston Bruins sits with 12 points back of Bobby with 22 goals, 41 assists for 73 points. The top goalies in the NHL at this point in the season, surprising there as well, New York Rangers goalies Eddie Jockman and the great Terry Sawchuk led the Vezina Trophy race with a goals against per game average of 2.25. Now in this week, 50 years ago, Bobby set an NHL record as he seemed to set every week anyway. This one was a pretty good one. He scores his 22nd goal of the season. That's the most ever in one season by a National Hockey League defenseman, breaking the old record of 21 set by... Bobby Orr, last season. Now, you may remember in the first season that the Philadelphia Flyers were in existence. They had to leave their arena, the Spectrum in Philadelphia, because basically the roof caved in thanks to some very, very terrible winter weather. I didn't know this until just recently, but the Flyers 
almost had to leave the Spectrum again during the 1969-70 season. Only wasn't any structural uh, disaster that was going to force the Flyers and the Philadelphia 76ers to flee the Spectrum. The The Spectrum was almost closed down when the Flyers insurance uh, company canceled their policy. What happened was the insurance company did an inspection uh, sometime before Christmas and the insurer prepared a report that listed 11 faults of some type in the spectrum. And it was in December that they made the inspection and they sent the report to the city of Philadelphia. Well, Leo Goldstein, he's the deputy commissioner of the Department of Licenses and Inspections for the city of Philadelphia, said he and his team were going to take a look at this. So they went to the spectrum. They completed a very thorough examination of the structure of the building and all the other faults, and I say that in quotation marks, that were uh, listed. And he reported that there was no danger to any employee or member of the public visiting events at the facility, and therefore he declared the building safe. The insurer wasn't satisfied with that and promptly canceled the policy. That would have meant that the city of Philadelphia was going to have to shut the spectrum down. Well, David Webb was a—he's a, a court-appointed trustee of the arena. Uh, you remember that was uh, brought in when they had all the trouble with Jerry Wolman and the Flyers and the Spectrum when it was first built. Well, David Webb was appointed by the courts to sort of be a trustee for the arena. He managed to obtain a new insurance carrier that was substantially the same as the $9.5 million policy that the Continental National American Insurance Group in Chicago had canceled effective February 18th. So the good news is the Flyers didn't have to move, the building remained opened, and the Flyers will continue to play hockey and the 76ers continuing to play basketball. Now, I'll move to Montreal now, where the Canadians are having an up-and-down, mostly down NHL season. Not as down as the Toronto Maple Leafs, but nonetheless, the Canadians are still having their problems. Well, Sam Pollock is the general manager of the Canadians, and he was at a hockey writer's luncheon in New York this week, and he admitted to Gerald Eskenazi of the New York Times, and by the way, he's quite a prolific hockey writer for the Times. Uh, His stuff, he's the guy you go to for hockey in the New York Times. He told Gerald this week that his team is showing signs of aging and that the days of hockey dynasties has passed. Sam said that due to the uh, universal amateur draft of uh, graduating juniors, teams no longer will have the ability to do as the Canadians did, hoard juniors and own them almost ad infinitum. Pollock said that teams were going to have to learn to work within the framework of the amateur draft system, and uh, you're going to have to build your team that way, and with everyone having access, uh, based on their, you know, the lower they were in the standings, that it's going to be hard for the top teams to maintain their position as top teams. He sees that as good for hockey, but a lot of people at the this banquet luncheon actually it was, took that as an admission from Pollock to say the Canadians were going to be on the bottom and there was nothing he could do about it. If you know Sam Pollock, you know that nothing could be further from the truth. You see, Sam, if you've been paying attention since the 1967 NHL expansion and the implementation of that amateur draft plan, has been accumulating a number of high draft picks, mainly from the expansion teams. If he drafts wisely, and if you know Sam Pollock, he will draft wisely, the Canadians probably won't be down in the dumps like they are this year for very long, and there will be another Montreal dynasty not far around the corner. I think what Sam was doing, especially in the media center of the world in New York, was doing a good job of preparing Montreal fans for a little short-term hardship while the next group of Montreal superstars assembles and prepares to dominate hockey. Now, one thing that 
Sam has sort of as a crutch for this year, and and he never uses it. You'll hear Coach Claude Ruel bemoan the injuries the Canadians have had this year, but you never hear Pollock whine about injuries. He figures that that's part of the game, and if you have the depth, you can overcome that. Here's a list of the players that have missed time for the Canadians for various reasons this year. All-star defenseman Jacques Lapierre has been suspended for three games. John Ferguson, he was suspended for six games, missed a bunch of games when he sprained first one thumb and then the other. And right now, at this point in time, he's out of the Montreal lineup with a fractured cheekbone. Henri Bouchard was out five weeks with a broken ankle. Jean Beliveau missed four weeks with a broken bone in his foot. Chris Bordelow, one of the up-and-coming young guys for the Habs, he missed four weeks with a shoulder separation. Gump Worsley has been on the sidelines since early in the year with a self-inflicted suspension. Well, actually, Gump just said he retired, but retirement papers were never filed. Dick Duff missed most of the early games before finally being traded away. Number one goalie Rogatian Vashon missed several games after being cut behind the ear for 20 stitches and now he's got a bruised ankle which means young Phil Mir will get more playing time and veteran defenseman J.C. Tremblay the smooth one he was out seven weeks with damaged nerves in his hand. Once these guys all get back the Canadians probably are going to make another run at a playoff spot. I think they can probably make it, but there's a lot of competition this time. Would not be surprised to see this playoff race go right down to final minutes of the final games of the season. A couple more notes about the Canadians this week. After a couple more losses, Coach Claude Ruel, who always makes it about him, told writers in Montreal that he would retire, he would step back, he would step down from his post as coach of the Montreal Canadiens if it would help the team. There was no vote of confidence forthcoming from Canadiens management when Claude said this. It was almost as if they were going to say, go ahead, you can quit. We'll find somebody who wants to coach this team. And a scary note from uh, the Canadians' camp. Remember left winger Jill Tremblay who had the severe asthma and he's been in hospital in and out because of that over the past couple of years. He hasn't played this year because of his health. And last Friday, he had such a severe asthma attack, it was thought at first it would be fatal. Medics uh, got him to the hospital. They performed some heroic work in the Montreal Hospital emergency room and we're happy to say that Jills is back on the road to recovery, but I think this pretty much seals Jill Trombley's fate as a National Hockey League player. Our next item comes from us from Ottawa, Canada, where we are uh, following the trial of hockey players Wayne Mackey and Ted Green. Uh, it began in Monday of this week. Uh, Mackey's uh, part of the trial was going first. He and Green were both charged with assault causing bodily harm. Uh, and in this day in 1970, I believe that uh, charge was the equivalent of assault with a weapon or deadly weapon, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and Mackey's under under uh, that charge now, and his trial began. Uh, altogether, 14 wit- witnesses were called by the two sides, by the prosecution and the defense. And after the uh, Crown had prevented, presented their case, Mackey's lawyers, uh, a fellow by the name of Mr. Chadwick, no relation to the goaltender Ed or the referee Bill, uh, he brought some witnesses of his own like Scotty Bowman, uh, Lynn Patrick of the Blues to give more or less character evidence. Bowman did not actually see the exchange, he said in his testimony. Uh, Lou Cause of the Toronto Globe and Mail gave a really good story and we took a lot of our, our information in this from that. Uh, but Mackey, in a in a very well it's not a normal move most uh, people in criminal trials don't testify in their own defense but Mackey did and he said some very interesting things which if you know Mackey if you know Ted Green and if you know the game of hockey can lead you to some 
very strong conclusions. Now, during the cross-examination, Crown Attorney John Castles uh, described Mackey as reckless in the way he wielded his stick against Ted Green. Castles said to Mackey that he didn't care if his stick hit Green in the head or in the shoulder. He said, you drove your stick down without concern where it would land. Mackey quite candidly said he hit Green to make sure that Green wouldn't hit him again. The evidence showed that Green did strike Mackey in the head area with his stick first. Mackey said, I wanted to knock his stick down. I wanted to protect myself. I know his reputation. I saw him hit Doug Moans over the head. I just swung in desperation to protect myself. Now, the incident uh, Mackey talked about there was a game one where Green swung a two-hander, a two-hander at the head of Wayne Mackey's former teammate, Doug Moans, when he played for Chicago. Green stick at that time hit Moans squarely on the head. Moans was wearing a very good helmet, uh, the same model that Stan Makita wears, and there was no damage to Doug Moans, but at the time people felt Moans helmetless could have been killed. Now Mackey said when he did swing his stick, he didn't swing at any particular area of Green's anatomy. Now under cross-examination, he went on to say that It was Green's reputation that drove him to swing his stick. There was a very damaging witness in all this. The Crown called Hugh Fraser Cameron, who's a sports reporter for CBC TV in Ottawa. Cameron really had uh, some interesting things to say, but if I had been Mackey's defense attorney, I would have questioned a few of the things that uh, Fraser said. One of uh, his statements, he said, Mackey tried to get free after they tangled in the corner, but Green wouldn't let him. He became extremely, Mackey that is, became extremely frustrated because Green was holding him. And then he says, Mackey blew his top. Mr. Green was grabbing and clutching at him and then gave him an elbow to the chin, which doesn't seem to jive with other uh, accounts of the event. I think he lost his temper. Now, I don't know how Hugh Fraser Cameron was able to read Wayne Mackey's mind, but he said that Mackey lost his temper. Nobody objected to that, apparently. He said, then Green came back with his stick, He didn't say Green hit Mackey on the head with the stick. He just said that Green came back with the stick. The two then fenced. That's accurate. Mr. Green brought his stick down. Mr. Mackey did the same thing. He lost his temper. Again, this is Hugh Fraser Cameron. Now, uh, Hugh Cameron, being a sports reporter in these days, to get cooperation from the players, you got to be one of the boys and you cannot really uh, say anything damaging to any player, especially those of a star caliber. Wayne Mackey is, at this point in his career, a fringe player in the National Hockey League. Ted Green is an established star. Hugh Fraser Cameron, anything he's going to say will probably uh, favor Ted Green, and you don't want a guy like Green being painted the bad guy. The referee in all this, a fellow by from Guelph by the name of Ken Bodendistel, uh, 30 years old. He's a rookie referee in the NHL this year, and he was working one of his first NHL games in training camp. He had a very experienced man with him in linesman Ron Finn, and the other linesman was a fellow of Rob Waddell of Copetown, Ontario. Now, Bodendistel said that the whole thing started when Green slightly pushed Wayne Mackey in the face with his glove, and at that point, the referee signaled a penalty. He then took his eye off the two players because on a delayed penalty, and that's what a it was he had to follow the puck with his eyes to ensure that when the offending team which would have been Boston in this case touched the puck play would be called so he said he didn't see any spearing motion which was what the accusation was that started the fight people said that Mackey speared Green Bodendistel said he didn't see it because he was watching the puck Now, after the puck was touched by Boston, he stopped the play and he noted that the players had their sticks up 
and they were pushing each other, kind of pushing each other away with the sticks. They were facing each other, according to Bowden Distal. And then as they pushed apart, Teddy Green came down with the stick on Wayne Mackey. Now, linesman Ron Finn, very experienced, uh, got in between the two of them. But when they put the sticks up in the air, according, this is Bowden Distal's evidence, Finn backed off. He put his arms in the air kind of to say, okay, this is over, break it off. But he backed off because then they started dueling with the sticks and Finn very wisely retreated. Bowden Distal said, I hollered at the boys, get your sticks down, boys. But then they kept them up. Then Mackey came down with his stick. It wasn't a swing from the ice. It was more like it straight down like a chop. It was hard for me, said Bowden Distal, to say how hard the blow was that struck him. Bowden Distal says Green went down to his knees, tried to get up, and then went down again. You could see he was very badly injured. Mackey's lawyer, Mr. Chadwick, uh, cross-examined Bowden Distal, and Bowden Distal said he was surprised to see Green lying on the ice. Now, he said very clearly Mackey did not wind up before hitting Green. There was no baseball baseball swing at Green. He said it was a straight down, almost like a chopping motion. The other thing that came out in Bowden Distal's uh, summation was that he did not believe that Mackey was either angry or lost his temper. It's easy to see in this case that with Ted Green's reputation, and if you followed hockey at all at this point in, in history, you know Ted Green was a mean, dirty, rough hockey player who inflicted a lot of injuries, especially on players who were more of a pacifist nature. And Mackey was really that. Mackey was probably scared for his life, and I think that could lead to an acquittal in this case. Stay tuned. We'll have the results when they come in. And a little addendum to the news on the trial. Ted Green underwent surgery this week to insert a plastic place into his head to protect the skull fracture he received in the stick fight. Doctors were very happy with the results of the of the surgery. Says Green is going to be fine and he could be ready to play in this year's Stanley Cup playoffs. That would truly be amazing. Now here's another uh, guy often described as a terrible, rough, dirty, crazy hockey player, Steve Durbano uh, of the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series, Toronto Marlboros. He appeared in the St. Catharines Court this week, charged with assault causing bodily harm. Now, this uh, arises from that incident on November 11th at Garden City Arena in St. Catharines in a Junior A game against the St. Catharines Blackhawks. Uh, Durbano was charged after he was involved in a scuffle in a corridor leading to the Marlboro dressing room. Now, I've been in that arena many times, played in there, coached in there, and I know exactly where this corridor leads from, from the visiting team's bench. Police are often stationed there to keep the visiting players from uh, being attacked by fans. And Constable Bill Smith, that was reported earlier to be John Smith, that's a guy I didn't know. Bill Smith actually is a guy I worked with when I was a member of the Niagara Regional Police, although at that time I was a little too young to be doing that. Durbano was involved in the scuffle in the corridor, and uh, he'd been given a game misconduct and thrown out of the game. During that scuffle, Constable Smith uh, allegedly suffered a head cut, and I don't doubt that that happened at all. Durbano was finally ushered off to the dressing room. Marley's coach, uh, Gus Bodner, was somehow involved. Smith was in between the two of them. There were fans getting in. Uh, Durbano was hustled to the dressing room where he was sequestered till the end of the game and then they managed to get him out to the bus after all the, the fans left. They charged Durbano with assault causing bodily harm and then Durbano and Bodner charged Constable Smith with assault against them. Constable Smith then replied with an assault bodily harm charge against Coach Gus Bodner. This will all come out in the court. There will be probably uh, a, a trial like Mackey's where there's going to be a lot of conflicting stories on this. The bottom line is it'll be resolved. I don't think anybody's going to jail over this. Not the police officer, not the hockey player, and not his coach. 
The Minnesota North Stars have too many defensemen. Can you believe that? An expansion team with too many defensemen. I didn't say too many good defensemen, just too many guys who are rear guards on this team. So to kind of uh, ease the logjam at that position, general manager Ren Blair sent veteran defenseman Johnny Mizek, he's a native of Hamilton, Ontario, to the Waterloo, Iowa Stars of the Central Hockey League. That was according to Blair, just a simply a case of the stars having too many too many defensemen on the roster, and it was Mizek who was fingered to go. John is not a uh, uh, anything more than a uh, a journeyman defenseman. He's not particularly fast. He's not particularly rough. He's not a great puck mover, but he does do his job as an NHL defenseman. And he feels he can play for any team in the NHL. So he told the North Stars, "I'm not going." I'm not reporting there. You got guys worse than me. You send those down. Northstar said he either goes down there or he's suspended and he doesn't get paid. Now, curiously enough, even though he said he had too many defensemen on the team this week, Blair, two days later, called up the veteran Elmer Vasco, who had been playing for Salt Lake City in the Western Hockey League. Now, Vasco would only get into three games for the North Stars as replacement for the injured Barry Gibbs. Uh, Gibbs had been out for a couple of weeks, and this is what really made Blair's claim that he had too few defensemen when he felt he had to call Vasco up when Gibbs is out. But Vasco, who was sent down to the minors in training camp because he was too heavy, came back up, not a lot lighter, and in fact didn't play very well, and went back to the minors from which he would never return to the National Hockey League. And the North Stars, by the way, are one of the National Hockey League's really best examples of success from the 1967 expansion. In their third year in the league now, they are averaging well over 14,000 fans per game, and that's actually just a little less than 100 fans below their capacity. That's right. They're almost playing to a capacity crowds every night in Minnesota. So the team has to be making some money. Some of the established teams aren't anywhere close to 99% of capacity. One more bit of North Star news. Uh, the North Stars since their inception have had Cesar Maniego as their number one goaltender, and he's been a workhorse playing just about every game through the first couple of years of the team. If you're noticing that Caesar isn't playing as much in the last couple of weeks, it's true. He hasn't been, and his back has been bothering him. Caesar, the last few years, has looked like this enormous workload he's been carrying is worrying him down. And to that end, Ren Blair received permission this week from the Montreal Canadiens to talk to retired goalie Gump Worsley. Now, Gump says he's retired, but as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, no retirement documentation has been followed or filed with the NHL. I think Gump Worsley would be the perfect guy to give Maniego a much-needed breather in between games, and his veteran presence certainly couldn't hurt an expansion team. And we have some news out of Buffalo this week. The team, as uh, we mentioned to you last week or the week before, held a Name the Team contest to determine what the new NHL team in Buffalo would be called. And uh, we have the results of the contest and the winners and the winning name. And rather than me tell you what it is, let's let Sabres broadcaster Ted Darling give us the news. The executive committee of the Niagara Frontier Hockey Corporation was not long involving the future fans of the new Buffalo franchise. Under the direction of its governors, Seymour and Northrop Knox, the Niagara Frontier Hockey Corporation offered the fans an opportunity to name the newest National Hockey League team in the form of a contest. After receiving over 1,000 different names, ranging from the Zips to the Mugwumps, the committee decided on a name which would best exemplify the aggressiveness, excitement, and action of an NHL team. The Buffalo Sabres. We spoke to the Knox brothers prior to the National Hockey League draft in Montreal. Gentlemen, we know you have a love for hockey. How far back does this, uh, this game go in the Knox family? 
Well, Brian, uh, I can remember our father many, many years ago uh, taking us down to a pond on the family place. We started playing hockey there, uh, must have been about the age of around 10. Norty, I understand you were the goaltender in the family, is that true? I was a goalie up at, uh, at college and also at school, and that's where I started, I guess, my real interest in hockey. Charlie Barton of the Buffalo Courier Express spoke to the Knox brothers about the uh, nickname, and this is what Seymour had to say. Seymour said, Our name denotes an aggressive, sharp, and penetrating weapon on offense and a parrying weapon on defense. A saber will be part of our logo and sweater emblem and can be quickly related to the saber dance written by Katachurian, a Russian composer who made a ballet the dan- the saber dance, I think it was called. Say Seymour's brother Northrop, he's a vice president of the team, said the executive committee wanted the spelling to be S A B R E, the Canadian English style, rather than the U.S. style of S A B E R S. Nordy said, "We'll draw many Canadian fans to our games here in Buffalo, and this will give them an identification with the club. It's something we want and something we need." There were several uh, people who picked the winning name of the Sabres. 13,000 entries and over 1,000 different uh, name combinations. Uh, There was a draw amongst those who had the right name. And uh, Mayor Frank Sedita of Buffalo drew the name of uh, Robert Sonnelitter Jr. of Williamsville, New York. And he receives two seasons tickets to the Sabres. Uh, Harry Cole of Delta Road, Mississauga, was one of the other uh, people who selected the Sabres. He and two other folks, three other folks actually, will receive two tickets for the Sabres opening night. And uh, still with the Sabres, don't expect to see Sabres general manager Punch Imlach trading any of his team's first round draft picks this year or probably any other year. Punch in his weekly column says that the big mistake of all the, the, or most of the expansion teams from 1967 was trading their draft picks to the established teams for washed up veterans. Well, one thing that is happening this time is the NHL has uh, instituted a rule whereby the player or the picks for the expansion teams the players, especially in the first three years of their existence, cannot be traded to any other National Hockey League team. Now we have some some news out of Pittsburgh with the Penguins. Uh, Penguins have been having trouble with the goaltending all year. Uh, the veteran Les Binkley. Uh, over the first two years of the franchise's existence became the number one netminder but he's had knee problems this year some other injuries and he hasn't been himself and his knee is bothering him again so he's not going to be able to play that means that it's going to be left to Al Smith and Joe Daly who's been called up from the Baltimore Clippers of the American Hockey League Joe was with the Penguins the first two years but Smith's fine play he was acquired from the Maple Leafs over the summer has uh, necessitated one of the goaltenders to go to the minors, and it was Joe. Joe started wearing a mask for the Penguins earlier this season, and he feels that contributed to his less-than-stellar play. So sent down to Baltimore, Joe got rid of the mask. He's been playing very well after discarding the mask, and he's called up this week, and Coach Red Kelly says that Daly will probably start in the in the very next game since his call-up. Al Smith has been having a bit of trouble as well lately, just hasn't been as sharp as he had been earlier in the season. So this is Joel Daly's big chance to make a mark in the NHL once again. And this is news uh, concerning the Penguins, but it might not actually involve the Penguins ultimately. Uh, Red Kelly is the coach of the Penguins, as we mentioned, and he has done just a wonderful job. Uh, He's coaxing this team into a playoff position. They could finish as high as second place in the Western Division this year. But Red, popular in Pittsburgh as he has been everywhere he's played and coached, may not be back in Pittsburgh again next year. And it's not because the Penguins won't want him back. 
The owner of the Penguins team, Donald Parsons, says the team is very happy with the job the popular redhead has done, but he wouldn't stand in Red's way if he wished to move to another team. The reason this was even brought up at all by Mr. Parsons was reports out of both Toronto and Detroit saying that both teams are interested in bringing in Red Kelly to coach the established teams there. Sid Abel, general manager of the Red Wings, took over as coach earlier this season when they fired Bill Gadsby three games into the season. In Toronto, the coach is Johnny McClellan, and while the the uh, management there is not unhappy with McClellan's work as the coach. Uh, McClellan himself is having some problems with his health due to the uh, awful toll that the Maple Leafs losing season is taking on him. It's like living in a fishbowl, playing or coaching in Toronto. You get all the attention, and Johnny, after years of coaching in places like Nashville and Tulsa, where hockey is not number one on the charts, probably is having a tough time adjusting. Just this week, he had to take away time from the bench because of stomach issues, and Dave Keon took over and ran some practices. The Leafs are concerned that continuing in the job as coach of the Maple Leafs may be detrimental to Johnny McClellan's health. And the Philadelphia Flyers recently promoted Marcel Pelche to the position of director of player personnel. He's been a scout for the Flyers since their inception, and, and he's just a great guy. Everybody in hockey loves Marcel. Well, he was in Toronto this week scouting again, and he was asked about who he thinks the best juniors are coming up in this June's uh, amateur draft. Now, this is the first draft where all the graduating juniors are available to all teams. Uh, this is because the uh, previous system where players were signed to C forms when they were 14 or 15 years old meant that a lot of players were already uh, the property of the uh, established six teams before expansion and so this year with no Montreal getting French kids or anything like that all the players are available. Uh, Marcel says that it's obvious that Gilbert Perrault of the Montreal Junior Canadiens will be taking first by either Buffalo or Vancouver whoever wins uh, the lottery for the first draft pick. Marcel says the second choice will be winger Reggie Leach, who's from Flin Flon, Manitoba. At least that's where he's playing. But the third pick could be Dale Talon of the Toronto Marlboros. Marcel says that Dale will probably end up with the Boston Bruins. Now, how does a rich team like Boston get richer by getting a kid like Dale Talon? Well, it's actually quite easy. The Bruins have the LA Kings first round pick in this draft as a result of a trade a couple years ago. They sent journeyman forward Skip Crake to the Bruins in exchange for the Kings first round pick in 1970 and they will get the third best junior in all of Canada. The rich get richer again. And speaking of junior players, here's one that isn't even eligible to be drafted yet this year. A young Guy Lafleur, who plays for the Quebec Ramparts of the Quebec Junior Hockey League, Junior A League, uh, isn't eligible to be drafted for another year. But he just finished his season this week with an amazing total of 103 goals. Now we're a year away from that draft. It's impossible to know who will have the first pick there, but you can bet after not being able to secure the rights to Gilbert Perot this time, Sam Pollock of the Canadians will be doing everything he can to get the rights to Guy Lafleur, who would seem to be a natural for the flying Frenchman, firewagon hockey, Montreal Canadiens. The biggest news this week came on Friday when the National Hockey League was shaken up and the LA Kings were the team that was doing the shaking. The Kings general manager Larry Regan made two huge trades involving a total of 12 players with the Kings giving up six men and acquiring six more. Now the biggest deal was between the Kings and the Chicago Blackhawks and the long-awaited trade of disgruntled defenseman Bill White finally happened and the big surprise was he wasn't going 
to the Boston Bruins. The Bruins, who had been angling for White since uh, training camp when Bill walked away from the Kings, were not able to come up with the package that Larry Regan liked the best. White was dealt to Chicago, and two other players went with him, and one of them, center Brian Campbell, the other, a total shock, number one goaltender, Jerry Desjardins, who last year was one of the best rookies in the National Hockey League, and he played almost every minute of every game this year, only being relieved on occasion by Wayne Rutledge. Uh, so it was White, Desjardins, and Brian Campbell going to the Blackhawks, and the Chicago Blackhawks gave up their former number one goaltender, the veteran Dennis DeJordi, defenseman Jill Marat, and center Jimmy Stanfield, younger brother of former Blackhawk, now Bruin, Freddie Stanfield. Marat, the big piece for the Kings, he, of course, was the centerpiece in that awful trade they made in May of 1967, where Phil Esposito, Ken Hodge, and Fred Stanfield went from the Hawks to the Bruins, and Joel Marat was the main piece coming to the Blackhawks. Marat never got comfortable in Chicago and never attained the stardom the Hawks thought that he should achieve. Now, the Kings also made a six-player trade with the Detroit Red Wings. In that one, the Red Wings got veteran defenseman Dale Rolfe and another veteran defenseman who was in Springfield at the AHL, Larry Johnson, along with another AHL player, left-winger Gary Cardo, who does have some potential. Going to Los Angeles, where forward Gary Monahan once thought to be a top prospect of the Montreal Canadiens, he had come to Detroit in a trade that sent Pete Mahovlich to the Habs. Also going to the Kings in that deal, defenseman Matt Ravlich, who's had some injury problems in his career, and another 22-year-old youngster by the name of Brian Gibbons, also a rear guard. Now, now a lot of people were really surprised uh, me, for one, couldn't believe that the Hawks were able to acquire an up-and-coming young goalie like Jerry Desjardins. But Regan is kind of guy who does not take kindly to people who cross him. Bill White crossed him, and Bill White now has a chance at a Stanley Cup with Chicago. And this week, Desjardins did the same thing. And this is what happened. Desjardins has been bothered by a bit of a sore knee. Uh, it had hampered his play a bit, and he was not as sharp as he had been in the past. Well, this week he criticized King's management for playing him and insisting he play a, an enormous workload with the bad knee. So as you know it, Larry Regan said, okay, you don't like it here? We'll send you somewhere else. I don't think Regan got anywhere near full value in this deal. Murad and White, Murad's a good young guy, good guy, but he's not a Bill White right now in his career. And Dennis DeJordi, I think, is on the downside. You can see that he has not been himself, and that enabled Tony Esposito to win the number one goaltending job in uh, Chicago. Now, Regan feels that uh, Murad is a tougher man than Bill White, and that's what the Kings have been lacking. The Kings have been lacking a lot more than just a tough guy. Uh, Chicago, on the other hand, with a rookie like Tony Esposito uh, having the big load in Chicago in goal there, Desjardins provides excellent backup. And uh, you need two goaltenders who can win games for you if you hope to go far in the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Red Wings, meanwhile, were ecstatic to get the veteran Rolf. He's a, a good puck mover, and he and he will fit right in on the Detroit blue line with their other veterans. But the problem for Rolf, according to General Manager Regan, is that he lacks heart and he doesn't give a hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time. The big deal, the big man for Regan in this deal was Monahan. He's only twenty-three. He was a great junior in Peterborough, and the Canadians really thought a lot of him, but wanted Pete Mahovlich so bad from the Red Wings that they traded Monahan to Detroit in exchange for Frank's younger brother. Now, Gibbons could be the dark horse in the whole thing. He's only 22 years old, and he's going to report to American Hockey League Springfield Kings, uh, where Larry Johnson had been playing, and he's still considered a prospect for the NHL. Now, Larry Regan said he had possibly two more deals in the hopper that he could accomplish before the early March trade deadline. It is known 
that Regan and Toronto General Manager Jim Gregory talked ex- extensively about White and Desjardins before the deal with Chicago was announced. Toronto apparently did not want to give up Rick Lee or Jim Dory. The Kings apparently wanted Dory in exchange for White, but part of the deal would have seen the veteran Bruce Gamble go to the Kings and Desjardins end up in Toronto. Interestingly enough, Jerry Desjardins' hockey career began in the Toronto organization. He played for the Toronto Marlboros in Junior A after signing a C form with the Leafs, but the Leafs did not maintain his rights, and he ended up in the Montreal organization, eventually landing with the Kings. Now he joins the Chicago Blackhawks. We think this has got to be a great move for Jerry Desjardins. So much news this week. Here's another uh, big Friday news item that came out of Vancouver where well-respected sports columnist Jim Kearney of the Vancouver Sun reports that the Canucks will definitely name Bud Poyle, former Philadelphia Flyers general manager, as their new general manager and present Western Hockey League GM coach Joe Crozier is going to be out of a job. There's been no official announcement made at this point by the Canucks, but Jim Kearney, very well connected. And if he's going to go on record with something like this, I would bet that that report is entirely accurate. And one more news item this week, and this is big news on the injury front. The New York Rangers have showed signs of cracking, not maintaining the first place standing. And uh, they have a uh, slump recently, but they were dealt a huge blow as defenseman Brad Park, right now second only to Bobby Orr on defense in the NHL, according to most people, he was diagnosed with a fractured ankle. He was injured in the Thursday night game against the Detroit Red Wings. And uh, this comes on top of an injury sustained on the February 13th by Jimmy Nielsen, who damaged knee ligaments. Luckily for the Rangers, Nielsen's injury isn't as serious as was first expected, but the Rangers are going to need uh, Park to fill in. Now Park's out, and the Rangers could make a trade. There is talk that they're looking at several veteran defensemen around the NHL, and it is known that Tim Horton might be available from Toronto. Now, Park's injury occurred when Brad and Red Wings defenseman Carl Brewer were chasing a loose puck behind the Detroit goal. It was an innocent play, no malice on either on either player's part. Park said he stumbled next to the boards. The back of his skate somehow embedded into the boards, and he fell into the Brewer, and the ankle snapped. Brad spent the night in the Detroit Osteopathic Hospital, was released the next day, and his leg is in a cast. Brad Park's probably out for the rest of the season. Well, this is the time in the show when we normally would talk about our personality of the week, but there's just so much news that we wanted to bring you. There are items we couldn't even fit into this week's broadcast that will leave the personality for next week. But what did we learn in this week's show? Well, we learned that the Habs general manager Sam Pollock admit that the Montreal Canadiens dynasty could be coming to an end. But we all know Sam has a plan, and I think when we go into the 70s, the Montreal Canadiens will be one of the NHL's prominent teams. We learned of Wayne Mackey's testimony at his assault trial over the fractured skull he inflicted upon Ted Green of the Boston Bruins back last September in an exhibition game. It was obvious, at least to us, that Wayne wanted to protect himself because of Ted Green's vicious reputation. And we learned that the team we're going to cheer for in Buffalo in the 1970-71 season will be called the Sabres. Now, we'll be back next week with lots more news and notes from the National Hockey League and some of the stories we're working on already, including the approaching NHL trade deadline with a lot of uh, trade rumors going around with some big names being mentioned. We will find out that the puck, the Canucks will formally name Bud Poyle as their general manager and we'll find out what happens to Joe 
Crozier, at least in the Vancouver situation. And we'll find that Gump Worsley, refusing to play for the Canadians, finally finds a new home. Please join us next week for another 50-year trip back in time to 1970. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced each week by Andy Cole. Our introductory music is from the Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, a great show if you ever get a chance to see them. Our other musical pieces and sound effects are put on by Andy Cole as well. Uh, Andy, in fact, is a member of the band out of Winnipeg named The Hearing Trees, and they're going on a tour of Western Canada in the coming weeks. And if you get a chance anywhere uh, where they're playing, uh, catch their show. They have some very neat Canadian indie rock music. Our research for these news items come from files from the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course the many, many publications found at our sponsor, newspapers.com. Another very worthwhile podcast I highly recommend is the Lex Write a Song podcast by Andy Cole. Now, Andy and a guest every week in Winnipeg uh, have some very entertaining conversation. And during the session, they write a brand new musical piece, which they perform at the end of the show. It's really quite interesting uh, and unique, the results they come up with. Very entertaining. I think you should give us a listen. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey label and at our WordPress site, which is Hockey50YearsAgo.com. Of course, the podcast can always be found through your favorite podcast app, the Google and uh, Apple podcast stores and on Spotify. Thanks very much for everyone for tuning in. We've got some interesting projects in the hopper that we'll announce very soon. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the 